0: This is Craig Brown and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that passages will shine a unique light on the text used for preaching here at the First Free Methodist Church of Seattle or for anyone who's looking to dive deeper into the Bible. Today's passage is Micah chapter 6 verses 6 to 8. It forms the Foundation of the Sermon here at First Tree Methodist Church on January 22nd, 2023. It's our third week in a series of messages called Value the Difference. And in this series, we're focused on some of the values Christians hold uh, that are unique to the Christian community. In this case, the value we're focused on is the value of mercy on this particular Sunday. Micah chapter 6 Verses 6, 7, and 8 are well-known verses as they contain within them the great cry for justice that we read in Micah chapter 6 verse 8. Before we get to that famous and very well-known verse, let's pause for a moment to look at some of the verses that that frame it at the beginning of Micah chapter 6. We hear at verse 6 of that very same chapter, With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take pleasure in thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give him my firstborn for my wrongdoings, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? All rhetorical questions. And this is really about the trappings of rituals and rites that can take place within our own spiritual life. Micah is what is commonly called a minor prophet. I don't like that moniker given to these 12 prophetic books at the end of Jewish scripture. There are 17 of these prophetic books in scripture. The five are called the quote-unquote major prophets, and the others are called minor prophets. All of these books are part of the prophetic literature and corpus of the Jewish scripture, And in addition, there's other prophetic material that we read in some of the historical books, like in even in the works uh, uh, surrounding Moses or Joshua, Judges, moving into the history of Samuel, Kings, even Chronicles. There's prophetic material there as well. But these books contain the oracles, if you will, of the prophets, and Micah is one of those books. These voices, these prophetic voices, often speak to power and to patterns that keep people from living as they should. Sometimes they're addressed specifically to those who are in power. Sometimes they're specifically addressed to the community or people. And sometimes they're even addressed to a hypothetical straw man, as is the case here in Micah chapter 6. The consideration of all these rhetorical questions is, is what, what is it that we're supposed to do that that somehow makes us in right relationship with God what kind of transaction needs to take place and so the question in verse 6 is then what is what is authentic worship what does it look like to to come before God and worship and, and so there are, are, are five different offerings listed here in verses 6 and 7 of Micah chapter 6 the first is shall we bring some burnt offerings a burnt offering is an offering uh, of course that is brought to the the altar on the Jewish temple or some other sacrificial altar, where the offering itself is wholly consumed. There are some offerings where a portion of an animal was completely consumed, a portion was not. There are other offerings where the animal was literally cooked like on a grill, and then the meat could be used for food for the priests. And then there's burnt offerings, and they're called burnt offerings because the offering is wholly consumed. So shall we come to God with many offerings that are completely consumed? Another rhetorical question is, should we come to God with yearling calves? Yearling calves were expensive and far more valuable than younger calves, so it wouldn't make sense to bring a yearling calf as a sacrifice when there are other more economical ones. So does it mean that we just need to bring something more expensive to God? Then it speaks of these 10,000 rams, uh, whether we should bring them to God, uh, and these thousands of rams conjure the images of King David when he brought the ark up to the city of Jerusalem and sacrificed many rams as part of that process, or Solomon when he dedicated the temple in Jerusalem, the very same thing. It's designed to bring these images to mind is that do we do these acts out of a sense of trying to gain a transaction with God, or do we, we do them out of just a, an act of sacrificial worship? Then the, the writer goes on to ask the question, should we give 10,000 rivers of oil? Again, that's hyperbolic, and an exaggeration. Of course, there's that 10,000 rivers of oil, but is it a matter of quantity that God is looking for? It is a matter of quality that God is looking for? Is it a matter of something of irreplaceable value? And this is where this text in verse 7 kind of winds to a close. Shall I give him my firstborn for my wrongdoings, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? There were many neighboring kingdoms around Israel that sacrificed their firstborn children or other children to their gods. Uh, dominant among them is a god named Molech uh, that uh, other ancient Near Eastern uh, religious communities would sacrifice young infants or children to as a, a way of, of murdering their own children in the, for the sake of religious sacrifice. Some places in the northern kingdom of Israel, to which Micah is addressed, the Israelites began to practice this themselves, using the fruit of their body for the sin of their soul. There is a sense in which all of these statements and these rhetorical questions are all about how do we transact our business with God? How do we make ourselves right with God? So each one of these is a rite or a ritual on the part of the ancient Israelites. And so Micah's point is somewhat rhetorical, of course. The amount of offering, its quantity or its value or its Its irreplaceable nature is unimportant, given the social ills facing Israel. So in a sense, each of these is a form of a bribery or a transaction. Um, The question that really is sitting beneath the surface here of of these these, uh, kind of exaggerated statements are, uh, what makes my behavior disappear? In other words, what will allow me to keep doing what I'm doing none of which is good, I'll talk about in just a moment, so that I can maintain some sense of rightness with God. That's the hypocrisy that's kind of baked in here. It's like a credit card. How do I pay this thing off every month? And what really is happening here is akin to what we're um, reflecting on from Deuteronomy chapter 10, which is when uh, the text tells us in Deuteronomy 10, 17, that God is impartial and cannot be bribed. In a sense, all of these exaggerated statements in verses six and seven are like a bribe. It says, "Like God, what could I give you to get you to look the other way, to not pay attention to my own wrongdoing? How do I clean my debt so I can spend more?" Is really the question that's being asked. And in Micah, uh, we read in other parts of this book some of the. The strange and uh, hurtful and painful ways the Israelites were engaged in evil practices in chapter two, verse one, we hear about landowners looking to gobble up small farmers, Chapter two, verse nine. We read about women and young t- children evicted from their homes in chapter three, verses one to three, we read about political leaders who are completely out of touch with people in order to stay in power. Chapter three, verse ten, we read about the exploitation of cheap labor in chapter three, verse eleven. We read about courts that are corrupt with bribery and scandal. Chapter 3, verse 5, about priests and prophets alike who are compliant with greed. These are the evils that faced the ancient Israelites that Micah was confronting, and there are many of the same evils we face today. And that opens up a key passageway for us, in that God seeks for us something beyond erasing a guilty conscience. You know, Micah is being uh, uh, hyperbolic or exaggerating for a reason. In other words, how much would it take to make all this go away? You know, it's akin to having the police officer pull you over for speeding and then looking at the officer and say, well, officer, what could I do right now to make this ticket go away? At no point is there any question about whether or not you were speeding or driving unsafe. And the same thing is happening here. At no point are the Israelites... uh, forming a question about making amends and making right their wrong behaviors. There's nothing about wholeness. There's nothing about abundance. This is a classic example in Micah chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, of what we commonly call sin management. How do I transact business with God so I can keep doing the things that I've been doing, but yet somehow maintain a fidelity with God? This isn't about justification. It's not even about sanctification. And so as we, we struggle with this, as we think about the transactions and the way in which we try to do business with God rather than live in communion with God, we may need to ask some, ourselves some of these very same questions. What could possibly change us and drive us to a different outcome? Well, Micah chapter 6 verse 8 is, of course, very well known. And it paints a picture for us about how we're called to live harmoniously. Now, in this response in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, where he attempts to answer the very question he's posed, what do we need to do before the Lord? He's, in a sense, appealing back to Deuteronomy chapter 10, a passage of Scripture I mentioned a moment ago about what God requires. Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 and 13 say this. Now, Israel, what does the Lord God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve him as your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today for your good? In every sense, Micah's word to Israel is no different than what they had previously heard. So, as much as we really love the way this verse is framed in Micah, it doesn't state anything new. It's a restatement of what has already been spoken in the Israelites' tradition. In our modern interpretation, we have to be careful to not moralize this text apart from faithful worship. I'll talk more about that in a moment. So it's like this. There's a clear ethical imperative here. But it can't be separated from the whole. The three truths we're going to look at in Micah chapter six, verse eight are intertwined. They are not separate things they're they're interwoven and interdependent. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? The first to do justice. what we hear in Micah six eight is that justice is kinetic. it is not a belief it is not an ideology it's something that is done. so many of the vices that I Listed off earlier from the book of Micah to you um, are those vices need to come to an end. They need to reframe their behavior. And so justice is an act of mercy. It's not just a concept or an idea by those who are in power. And so Micah's expectation, as is God's, is that each person is responsible for acts of justice. We cannot think of justice as something someone else does or appeal to someone else to do it exclusively. We are responsible for acts of justice in small ways and in large ways. So there's little space in this text to understand justice as an idea we hold separately from behavior. Truth number two in Micah chapter 6, verse 8 is where it says to love kindness. This is an unusual construction in Hebrew of these words together. There's There's a sense in which justice is balanced with the third truth, which is to walk humbly with our God, and that's what truth number two is about. It's to love kindness. Now, the word here for kindness is the Hebrew word chesed, and it means steadfast love or commitment or faithfulness. So the imperative here in Micah 6.8 is that we're to love that. We're to love chesed. So in other words, a faithful life is characterized by loving or longing for love. The question here is not to know or have that, uh, that steadfast love, chesed, but to actually love it. So what Micah is saying in some ways is that you're to love love that you're to be in love with the concept of steadfast love so that the doing of justice is linked to a deep intentional desire to embrace and to know love. Which takes us to truth number three, to walk humbly with your God. And this is the the balance in this equation of doing justice, but to walk humbly with your God, with the love of love at the center. The Walk is an important metaphor in Scripture, to walk humbly with your God. It tells us in the Genesis story, in the second creation story that starts in Genesis 2, that Adam and Eve walked in the garden, that Adam walked with God in the garden. They used to take evening strolls together. So walk became an important metaphor in Scripture, and it means to be in an abiding relationship, harmony, side by side. So how are we to walk? We're to walk humbly. All of the outrageous examples given in Micah chapter 6, verses 6 and 7 point toward an individual trying to achieve equality or parity with God. It's almost like saying to God, what do I need to do to make this right so that I can keep doing the evil things I'm doing but yet be right with God? It's It's all about trying to attain a sense of equality with God. And here we have something very different. Humbly is a word that acknowledges that we have received mercy from God. And and this is why this text cannot be moralized. It cannot be removed from its spiritual core. There's something here about the love of chesed, or the love of loving kindness, and walking humbly with God that enable the doing of justice. We can't just simply say to do justice apart from loving love and walking humbly. It all works together. It all works together. It opens a key passageway for us here, that our life with God shapes our behaviors driven by God. It, see, there's harmony here. That The chief human sin here is to fail to give to others what we've received. So lacking this touch point, if we haven't received from God, then we become unmoored. We lose focus. We can easily become callous uncaring, and even cold. We can see it in the way Christians conduct themselves at times with, uh, with their uh, lack of gracefulness in the way they talk to each other in certain gatherings or in public discourse. What Micah reminds us of here is that we are not to be a proud, chest-thumping people. We do acts of justice, we love loving kindness, and we walk humbly with God. Now, if those three behaviors intersect us with admiration and accolade, fine. If they intersect us with suffering and pain and hardship, fine. Jesus lived this perfectly. That that Jesus' life with God shaped the behaviors of his life perfectly. He is not only our example but he's also our companion and guide by the Holy Spirit to do justice, to love mercy or to love steadfast love and to walk humbly with God. If you have comments or reflections, I'd love to hear from you. Please visit my website website at revcraig.com. You will see in the upper right-hand corner a button that says news. And then if you click on that, a drop-down menu will appear and you'll see the word podcast. If you click on that, then click on any episode and leave a comment. I'd love to hear from you. I'd encourage you to also visit ffmc.org, firstfreemethodistchurch.org, to learn more about free Methodism and how you can connect with our community. For now, I bid you all grace. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.